Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social, political complexities, and often examine the way they're covered in mainstream media. In 2020, a 44-day war saw Azerbaijan win the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region back from Armenia, often put in the too-hard-to-understand-or-explain basket, like many wars or skirmishes around the world that don't directly involve the Western world, this battle was a very consequential chapter in this long-running conflict between the two nations, as Armenia had held the region for essentially more than 25 years before this 2020 war. Further Azerbaijani offensives in late 2022 threatened to further this precarious position, with ramifications not only for an increasingly weakened and threatened Armenian population, but for the broader South Caucasus region between the Black and Caspian Seas, a potentially critically important region in the global landscape in the coming future. This week, we're lucky to be joined by Ron Suni, a distinguished professor of the former Soviet Union and the broader Caucasus region. Ron, thanks for joining us on Sunday Dispatch. I'm happy to be here. The mountainous region of Nagorno-Karabakh has been a contested site between Armenia and Azerbaijan, two bordering countries for a while now. For those who don't maybe know much about it, um, it's a strange situation because the region itself um, is contained inside the Azerbaijan territory, but until it took Azerbaijan took it back in 2020, it was formally um, and officially a part of Armenia. There's a lot of different opinions about when this conflict or um, contestation over the region started, Ron, but where would you personally point to historically as sort of a starting point that we should look at? I'm going to start by saying what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't think of this conflict as what journalists sometimes call, no offense meant to any journalists, ancient tribal conflicts. That is, that somehow essentially peoples who live near each other, like Armenians, Turks, Armenians, Azerbaijanis, uh, must come into conflict with one another and have through centuries, millennia of histories had conflicts. Now it's true that peoples living next to each other, who are different maybe by religion, ethnicity, social status, will have conflicts with one another. That happens. But actually in history, for long periods of time, sometimes you know, decades, centuries, millennia, in one way or another, they managed to live together. And in the area we're looking at, the so-called South Caucasus, that is the area once known as Transcaucasia, which is from the Russian point of view. So the highest mountains in Europe are the Caucasus Mountains that divide Russia proper from the South Caucasus, this isthmus that lies between the Black Sea and the Caspian and borders then on Turkey and Persia or in former times the Ottoman Empire and the various Persian or Iranian empires. So that's the area we're looking at, the South Caucasus. And there in the South Caucasus, a country, an area that's quite complex ethnically and religiously, you find three major populations. Two of them are Christian, Georgians, who are Orthodox Christians, that is related somehow to the greater Orthodox churches 
of Russia, of the Balkans, and so forth. Uh, Armenians who have their own church, Christian church called the Armenian Apostolic Church, sometimes mistakenly called Orthodox. And then Azerbaijanis who are Muslim. And we have records of Armenians and Georgians going back long before the birth of Christ into the 5th, 6th century before uh, our own era uh, and living in that area. So there were uh, reports from ancient Greeks, from uh, Persian sources, etc., of these people living there. Around the 7th century, Islam was emerging as a distinct religion, and much of this area was later conquered by Arabs, by the Mongols, by Turkmen, by Ottoman Turks, by Persians, many of whom became eventually Muslims. Now, as we get into modern times, I know this is far more than you may have wanted to know, <laughs> but you asked for it, and here's a historian telling you the long durée of this history. Yeah, we can't shorten it, you know. <laughs> as, we, as we get into modern times, the area is divided between the a people that will eventually be called Azerbaijanis, who speak a Turkic language, who are Shi Muslims, right? Distinct from the Turks in Anatolia, who are Sunni Muslims, and the Christian peoples, the Georgians and the Armenians. And they lived together under various empires, fighting with one another, but under empires. And in empires, these peoples didn't have distinct, fixed territories or even areas that were named and given to them by the state. In the early 19th century, they were brought under Russian rule by the expansion of Russia over the Caucasus into the South Caucasus. And eventually that area that was taken by Russia, a border was fixed between the Ottomans, the Persians, and the Russians around 1828. That area of the South Caucasus uh, eventually became part of the Soviet Union. And here's the kicker. In the Soviet Union, three distinct republics eventually would emerge. Soviet Georgia, Soviet Armenia, and Soviet Azerbaijan. After a brief period of somewhat independence, they became Soviet republics by 1920-1921. But a particularly uh, interesting area, the one you mentioned, Lindsay, that is Nagorno-Karabakh, or mountainous Karabakh, which at the time was 90% demographically populated by Armenians, was left in the Azerbaijani Republic, just a few miles from the Soviet Armenian Republic, for various reasons, politics, to appease the Muslims, because Azerbaijan was richer, Azerbaijan has oil, Armenia has rocks and dirt. Uh, and so this anomaly developed, and Nagorno-Karabakh, mountainous Karabakh, was given autonomy, a certain degree of self-identification, and you could say self-rule, though it wasn't very realistically ruling itself. It was basically governed ultimately from Baku, the capital of Soviet Azerbaijan. So, as you said, Nagorno-Karabakh was originally 90% Armenian population. 
but the Soviets made it into this autonomous national region, placing it entirely within Azerbaijan. Why did they decide to do this? And was it a, was it sort of a um, a mistake? Do you think? Some people argue that it was actually Stalin who made the decision. I've looked at the documents. Stalin was certainly at the meeting. He was the most prominent Bolshevik. It doesn't say in the documents that it was Stalin's decision, but but it was thought of at the time. First of all, Azerbaijanis claimed that area as theirs, and it was part of a czarist province, Elizabethpol, uh, which was distinct, and most of which was being given to Azerbaijan. So Edovansky uh, province was being given to Armenia. So some of the old lines of difference and distinction were, were complicated that way. But it was, it was anomalous. It was strange. And the Armenians wanted that area linked back to their own republic, which was in territory, the Armenian Republic, the smallest of the Soviet socialist republics in the USSR. Mm. And do you think that it was a mistake to give like this decision of autonomy or um, or even the idea that it would be like a fully autonomous state? Do you think that was a naive sort of idea? Uh, you can get me into real trouble here because I'm <laughs> an Armenian born in the United States. Uh, <laughs> and my Armenian compatriots, my fellow Armenians, would of course think it was a mistake. And in a way, it was anomalous. It was certainly anomalous. That is, it would have made sense according to the Soviets' own nationality policy, uh, as propagated by Vladimir Lenin, the founder of the Soviet state. That is, these, these areas were supposed to be self-determined. They were supposed to be the principle of national self-determination. So by that principle, this area should have been part of Armenia, but was left in Azerbaijan for political and economic reasons. I'm interested as well, the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic. It seems almost the opposite of what Nagorno-Karabakh was, where it's an official Azerbaijani territory. But if you look on a map, it's a opposite sort of thing to Nagorno-Karabakh, where it's entirely inside the Armenian territory. Is it a similar sort of story there, or is it a bit different? Similar. There were Armenians in Nakhichevan. So Nakhichevan is uh, a, an autonomous area within Azerbaijan, but separated from the bulk of Azerbaijan by a strip, a major part of Eastern Soviet Armenia and now Arme the state of Armenia. And Nakhichevan was overwhelmingly about 80% or more, I don't have the exact figures at my fingertips, uh, Muslim and Azerbaijani. So that area was given to Azerbaijan. But again, this is a little bit strange, uh, separated from the other part of the Republic. Uh, and there, over over the years, Armenians left Azer at Nakhichevan, and it became almost entirely homogeneously um, uh, Azerbaijani. And in Karabakh, analogously, Armenians also drifted away from Karabakh, but still, even at the end of the Soviet Union, three quarters of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh autonomous region was still Armenian. So mm -hmm. overwhelmingly Armenian, but about a quarter now also was Azerbaijani. And that's the setup of the conflict that then developed. Mm. 
Um, as you mentioned before, often these conflicts are often very lazily cast as battles by ancient tribal differences or opposing religious beliefs, you know, these very simple, um, not very correct explanations. And as you mentioned, Armenia, historically a Catholic country, Azerbaijan, despite its shorter history as a nation, mostly a Muslim, um, secular Muslim state. But for long periods under the Soviet Union, they lived mostly without major conflict. You know, I'm sure there was some sort, there were, you know, differences, but no major conflict on the scale that we've seen since the breakup of the Soviet Union. So I'm wondering, Ron, how significant was the breakup of the Soviet Union to the hostilities we've seen between both nations today? I would say the breakup of the Soviet Union and even the weakening of the central Soviet government under Mikhail Gorbachev after 1985, he ruled from 1985 to 1991, was very significant. So you're right, Lindsay, that there was generally, I, I would say, what you might call a, a Soviet imperium, uh, an Im imperial rule that moderated and modified and prevented uh, strong nationalism to develop, to be articulated, uh, or to be uh, become a movement uh, in the Soviet period, until the center itself began to weaken. And then Armenians, first in Karabakh, and then in Armenia itself, began agitating openly in the streets, uh, in the newspapers, uh, and petitioning Gorbachev to try to get uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, annexed back to Armenia. And the Soviet regime didn't want that kind of trouble. And the, obviously the Azerbaijanis didn't want it. And Gorbachev held off and would not change the boundaries. Meanwhile, Azerbaijanis, first in the town of Sumgayit, rioted. And we have a kind of anti-Armenian pogrom in uh, 1988, around February uh, 1988, in which they began killing Armenians. Uh, some dozen or so Armenians were killed in that pogrom. And that meant that now the conflict suddenly, spontaneously within the Soviet Union had become a, 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 a matter of violence, violent conflict. And uh, Gorbachev tried to mediate it, but it didn't work. And so the two republics were now at loggerheads. And eventually this developed into an open war. And when the, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, now two republics, Armenia and Azerbaijan, independent sovereign states were at war over Karabakh. And the Armenians managed, better organized at the time, better motivated to win that first war. And, and Karabakh was held by Armenians and the local Azerbaijanis were driven out. And that war ended in 1994 with a Russian brokered armistice. And so from 1994 till the fall of 2020, the Armenians were in a dominant position. And they even moved outside of Karabakh itself and took other uh, Azerbaijani areas to the south, bordering on Iran, and drove our, uh, Azerbaijanis in that area, ethnically cleansing them, uh, to become refugees in in. Uh, the other parts of Azerbaijan. So for all that period, uh, for those uh, 20 plus years, 
Armenia was in a position of control. And meanwhile, Azerbaijan, a larger, more populous, uh, and richer state with its oil, uh, began arming itself, enriching itself, finding allies like Erdogan's Turkey, like Israel, and Armenia was left alone. Its only allies were Russia, kind of difficult ally, because it, Putin actually would send arms both to Armenia and to Azerbaijan, and Iran. So sadly for Armenia, its two major allies, Russia and Iran, are pariah states. And any idea that the Americans would be happy with that, of course, has to be thrown out the window. Mm. Um, at the risk of getting you in trouble with the diaspora again, I want to ask Ron, do you think that that Armenian takeover um, in the 90s, back of Nagorno-Karabakh, was a mistake? Do you think it... Uh, like, I like the idea that it was, you know, a reconquering of, like, rightful lost territory, was it hard to disentangle that from the moment of the 90s and that breakup of the Soviet Union and you know, these ideas of self-determination that kind of got unleashed. The the uh, Armenian uh, de declaration of kind of autonomy or independence of, of uh, Karabakh uh, was an effervescent moment for Armenians. And it was a moment of, in which their own national identity was enhanced. Armenians now dreamt of a larger state, of an enhanced uh uh, uh, Armenia, an augmented, you might say, Armenia. And it was very, very popular. And it united Armenians in the diaspora and in Armenia itself and in Karabakh around this new ideal. And of course, it alienated them totally from Azerbaijan, which became increasingly hostile and armenophobic in the meantime. Now, what you might say, in my opinion, uh, as a strategist here, uh, the mistake of the Armenians was then to move beyond Karabakh into those adjacent areas of Azerbaijan, drive out Azerbaijanis from there, and try to take that area, which had never been there, theirs, and never been a part of Nagorno-Karabakh, and never been inhabited in recent modern times by Armenians, trying to settle Armenians there, thinking that somehow Armenia was kind of a new Israel, that we could do what the Israelis do to Palestinians on the West Bank, you know, drive them out or send in settlers and create a state. And that was impossible. Very few Armenians went to those areas. But it certainly antagonized and alienated the Azerbaijanis, who bad their time until eventually they were armed, stronger than Armenia, and launched that war. You mentioned a really interesting point before about how under empires, these peoples living in these areas didn't have these ideas of distinct nations, you know, when there were no borders. And I'm interested in the way that these two neighboring countries both sort of constructed different ideas of na nationhood, you know, when the borders then go up, and how ideas of nationalism are kind of wielded against each other. Um, particularly in the battle over this region. Armenia, you could argue, has arguably a much longer history and conception of a nation rather than Azerbaijan, um, which is more recent. 
And I'm wondering, Ron, through what sort of histories or social, political, economic conceptions were the ideas of both of these nations formed, um, you know, and what sort of difference does it make once the borders do go up, um, you know, and war becomes an issue as well? So empire is a particular kind of political formation. Empires are a, a, a diverse, usually large state in which one nationality, people, or institution in the communist empire, in the Soviet empire, would say it was the nomenclatura, the communist elite, dominates over others. And that communist elite dominated over the non-Russians, Armenians, Azerbaijanis, Uzbeks, Ukrainians, as well as over Russians as well. And empires are characteristic, characterized by what you can call the mixing of peoples. People move around. They're not limited to a certain territory. Oh, Georgians might dominate in large parts of what's today. Georgia are Ukrainians in Ukraine, but they can move. You know, Gogol, a great Ukrainian writer, made his fortune and fame in Petersburg, St. Petersburg, which is was then the capital of Russia. So people did that. And in the Soviet empire as well, people would move, particularly Armenians, from the republic into other places. But a nation state is quite different. If, if an empire is about the mixing of the peoples, nation states, and I'm generalizing here, of course, but there's a tendency of unmixing people. Nation states have as a goal, especially ethnic or ethno-national states, of homogenizing the population, of getting rid of others, or of dominating or assimilating minorities, right? Um, you can think about the formation of many of these states, including the two that we live in. And those states were formed by driving out or you know, marginalizing the native peoples, ethnic cleansing, sometimes genocide, etc. So nation states don't always achieve it, but they attempt to become more harmonious and homogenous. Now, in the Soviet case, I, I call the Soviet Union an empire. So you had some mixing. For instance, the city of Baku, which under the Russian Empire and the Soviet Empire had large Armenian populations, uh, though it was the capital of Azerbaijan. Same way with Tbilisi, a large, though shrinking, Armenian population. Yerevan, in the Tsarist times, had a Muslim population, a majority Muslim population. But when they became national republics, even in a Soviet empire, they too tended to homogenize. So Armenia became more Armenian, Azerbaijan more Azerbaijani, Georgia more Georgian, and their capitals eventually became, in fact, the capitals that were demographically made up largely, this didn't happen in some cases until the 1960s, or almost exclusively uh, the part of the dominant, the entitled so-called titular nationality. So, and and but it's still an empire. The Soviets were still an empire, and borders were not important. So it didn't matter that much. You could go from Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, to Baku, to Tbilisi, without any problem. This were this was all one state, all part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Once they became independent sovereign states in 1991, 
Then borders were hardened and struggles over borders occurred. Uh, and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh became a problem. It was located, according to international law, in Azerbaijan. And by the principle of territorial integrity, it belonged to Azerbaijan. By the other principle, Woodrow Wilson's principle or Vladimir Lenin's principle of national self-determination, which conflicts with territorial integrity principle in many cases, by the principle of national self-determination, Nagorno-Karabakh was Armenian and ought to be part of Armenia. But in international law, the principle of nat uh, national territorial integrity trumps is taken more seriously in order to prevent wars than national self-determination. Not always. The case of Kosovo is one where the dominant European powers and the United States decided to act on the basis of national self-determination. And we still have a problem there because, uh, and, and Putin has used Kosovo as, as a precedent for his own land grabs in places like Crimea or the Donbass. Mm. Yeah, those are all really great points. Um, just to get us up to speed with what's happened in the last few years, Ron, um, in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, what's the current status quo at the moment and how much has the 2020 war and skirmishes since then, how much has that changed the balance of power in the region? The, for Armenians, the 44-day war that you mentioned in the fall, September to November, of 19, uh, 2020 was a catastrophe, a disaster. It was uh, won by Azerbaijan, thanks to drones like the Bayraktar drone from Turkey, which is Turkey is also sent to Ukraine, uh, and Russia's not happy about that, and Israeli weapons and drones. And so the uh, Azerbaijanis won that war, and, and Armenia was quite brutalized civilians killed and so there are a lot of atrocities uh, uh there are terrible stories on both sides of the fence but uh some of these uh, have clearly caused uh, a division between these two countries that's going to be very hard to overcome and azerbaijani was gleeful and triumphant in its victory and is celebrating it and has the upper hand and armenia is in despair it's, our, it's government divided, it's society divided, and it's very hard uh, for them to recover. Now note, Azerbaijan is an authoritarian, despotic state ruled by the Aliyev family, by a guy named Ilham Aliyev, who is a close friend and ally of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the authoritarian leader of modern-day Turkey. Armenia is a democratic state. It had a democratic popular revolution and a government that was re-elected under Nikol Pashinyan. So here you have a struggle that if the United States took seriously, it would defend Armenia, a democracy, against an authoritarian state, Azerbaijan. But Azerbaijan has oil. And there are many, particularly in the Republican Party in the United States, who prefer in this situation a kind of materialistic or realpolitik approach rather than a kind of moralistic Wilsonian approach that Biden seems to be using in uh, the Ukrainian conflict. 
I would say this, that um, at the current time, these two wars that we're watching, uh, most of the attention is on Ukraine and people aren't paying attention to, to Azerbaijan, Ar Armenian conflict. But both of these wars somehow can be seen as the continuing unraveling of the Soviet empire, of trying to get the borders right, of trying to figure out where peoples belong. Should Crimea be part of Russia because 60% are Russia, Russian or Russian speaking? What about the Donbass, which is mixed? More Ukrainian than Russian, but lots of Russian speakers there. Uh, what about Karabakh? So this is a problem. And the biggest fallout of the war in Ukraine and Putin's disastrous uh, uh, invasion, which has led to his own being mired down in the mud of the Ukrainian plains, the biggest fallout of that conflict for us in the Caucasus is that the Russians have not fulfilled their obligation as the major ally of the Armenians. During that 44-day war, Putin sat on his hands and did not come to the aid, for very technical reasons, of the Armenians and allowed the Turks, Israelis to aid um, uh, Azerbaijan and for that victory to take place. And even now, as there's skirmishes between Azerbaijanis and Armenians, and there's a blockade of Karabakh, which we Armenians call Artsakh, an old Armenian term, uh, the, the, even though there's a blockade and shortages of food and fuel in that wintry mountainous place right now, the Russians are doing very little about it. And Armenians are becoming more disenchanted, more disgusted with the Russians. Mm. Yeah, and a very yeah interesting point you raise about the West sort of turning its back or like, you know... Uh, not helping out Armenia. And we've seen that, I think, in Europe as well, Europe turning towards Azerbaijan um, for increasing oil and gas partnerships because they've refused to buy it from Russia due to its invasion, um, which it seems like there's a bit of, like, you know, hypocrisy there if they're buying from Azerbaijan. Um, a few episodes on this show, we explored Qatar and how Western imperial interests, but also global capitalist interests, particularly in fossil fuels, build and continue to, you know, support the despotic Gulf states in the Middle East. Um, Azerbaijan obviously built its country massively through oil and gas fortunes, you know, its proximity to the Caspian Sea. Is there a similar story with the Aliyev dynasty in Azerbaijan as there is to the Gulf states in the Middle East, do you think? Absolutely. I like the way, Lindsay, you put it. Some of the words you used are, are infrequently heard on American radio or television. So sometimes they sneak in global capitalist domination <laughs> or, or, you know, neoliberal, uh, you know, politics and so on. But, but in fact, it's true. I mean, let's, let's look at what's actually going on in the world. Now I'm going to kind of expand our lens a bit here. Uh, the struggles going on globally, if you wanted to look at them in a big way, and I would include Ukraine, the problems in, in, with China and Taiwan uh, and Armenia and Azerbaijan. You can see how tiny our little struggle is in this global setting. The big picture is we have a global military 
and economic hegemon, the richest and most powerful state militarily and economically in world history, the United States. And on the other side, you have a growing movement, which Vladimir Putin, long before he made that insane idea to invade Ukraine, which I'm sure he now regrets but can't get out of, before that, from roughly 2007 in the, uh, at the Munich Security Conference, he talked about how we have to end unipolarity, dominance by the United States, and we have to increase multipolarity, different countries having their own interests in different areas. And other powers, China, India, and by the way, more of the populated countries of the global south, more and more of the world's population in those countries moving away from this idea of American dominance. And that's going to, that's a radical change in the world. And sadly, where does that leave Armenia and Azerbaijan? Armenia is so weak, so battered at the moment, so divided, but a democracy holding on tight uh, against an authoritarian state. And yet the material and realpolitik considerations have put Europe and the United States uh, in a position where they're not seriously defending Armenia but more siding with Azerbaijan, or at least standing between the two. We've been chatting to Ron Suni, a distinguished professor of the former Soviet Union and the broader Caucasus region. Ron, thank you for joining us on Sunday Dispatch. Where's the best place for listeners to maybe follow your work or maybe even follow what's going on um, in the region if they're interested? There's some articles I've published recently in The Conversation, an online uh, kind of newspaper, and in the left-wing journal, Jacobin. So thank you and for giving me this time, and it was a real pleasure to work with you. Yeah, it was fantastic to have you on. Thanks again, Ron.